Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. That refers to my three pen names, Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Corio, and Philippe de la Matraque. And we've been reading Finding Home by Philippe de la Matraque. Philippe de la Matraque wrote Alien Us, which is a 30-chapter long story that took 10 years for me to write. And you can listen to that in all of season six. All 30 episodes are the same story. Alien Us. Finding Home takes place right after that. And I read the first chapter a couple days ago in season 10, episode one. And it starts right there where they're having that date in the galley. So... We now have read the prologue, chapter one and chapter two, and we're ready for chapter three. At this point, Malcolm is still unconscious. He's on his way back to Earth. Trip is with him. Hoshi is back on Enterprise. They are heading out. Now they're radio silent, and they are heading out to a secret mission. And on Earth, Madeline's sister has decided she wants to try and give him her heart. So... Let's see what happens in Chapter 3. Star Trek Enterprise Finding Home by Philippe de la Matraque Sequel to Alien Us Chapter 3 Two months in the past It's just not fair, she told the camera and her brother. I know, I don't have a monopoly on that. Fair was never part of the deal. There's so much I've never done, and now I never will. She wasn't hiding the tears anymore. I've never seen the stars like you have. I've never seen Prague in person. Oh, Malcolm, that architecture. Why did I never go? Why did I never have a pet? I've lived on my own for years now. Father wasn't here to stop me. Why didn't I get a kitten? I've never been in love, if you can believe it. Not once. Men have told me they love me, but I have never felt it back. I'm going to die without ever having fallen in love. So not fair. She dropped her head. I envy you, Malcolm. She raised her head. Your life is an adventure. There in the stars, seeing new worlds, facing dangers and overcoming them. You saved the planet. I've never even saved one life. I can't even save my own. She sighed. My therapist says I'm depressed. Shocking, isn't it? She pointed to her head. Incurable Zindi brain tumor here. What's there not to be depressed about? I'm not even 30 and I have absolutely nothing to look forward to. Just headaches and confusion and loss of control of my body until I finally die. She dropped her head again. God, I'm depressing you now. As if you'll ever actually see this. I'm sorry. She tilted her head up slightly. I just can't seem to muster any happier thoughts today. See you tomorrow. Maybe. Three surgeons met with the chief medical officer of Starfleet Medical in San Francisco. Two were neurosurgeons, and the third was a cardiac specialist. Captain Carla McCormick handed each a pad. We have a unique case coming in. One Lieutenant Malcolm Reed, 
In short, he could have been put through a blender and come out in better shape. He's been through hell and now, among other things. He needs a new heart. That's where you come in, Stephen. Stephen Carver studied his pad. I'm surprised this one's still beating at all. One-inch diameter spikes? Dr. Pavel Novak asked. Yezishmaria! What happened to this man? What did they do to his ankles? That was Dr. Georges Letourneau. McCormick studied her own pad, which contained a terabyte of data about just what this lieutenant had suffered over the span of a year. She was allowed some discretion in divulging that information, but these surgeons would only have limited interaction with the patient. Too much, she replied. And most of it is classified. I'm handling his case personally. He's on a Vulcan tr medical transport and should be here in a week. Given the sensitivity of his case, I want you all to work together on one surgery. That's going to be crowded, Novak pointed out. McCormick nodded. Yes, it will, and after I evaluate the patient, I may insist on more crowding. That's why we're talking about this now. The teaching theater, Carver suggested. You've got wrists, right? He asked Novak. Novak sighed. What's left of them, yes. These can be moved away from the chest if we spread his arms. He held his arms out to the side to demonstrate. Carver raised one of them. Higher. I'll need people on both sides of that chest. I'll need as much room as you can give me. Not too high, McCormick commented. I'm concerned about his right eye. His sternum is heavily damaged as well. Might give us an opportunity for the new osteofusion procedure. What is that? Letourneau asked. I deal in nerves, not bones. McCormick held out her one hand, palm down, then held out her other hand the same way, but a few inches above the lower hand. We fused the donor bone onto the patient's bone. She lowered her top hand onto the lower. The technology borrows from the transporter. End result is a fused marriage of the two bones. Letourneau nodded in appreciation. Très bon, merci. Do we have a donor or donors lined up? Novak asked. Not yet, McCormick replied. I'll be meeting a potential donor later today. All three's eyebrows shot up, but Carver voiced their shock. Alive? Cindy brain cancer, McCormick said. Not long left. Wants to help. Škoda, Novak remarked. Seven million was not enough? Apparently not, Carver said. Well, the teaching theater will give us the space we'd need. Could even have the donor there. Quicker transfers. Good point. McCormick made some notes on a separate pad. There would need to be a partition installed. That would allow the neurosurgeons to return to the donor as necessary, but still keep the patient and donor separated. She also noted to enlist Dr. Megan Palikatile for anesthesia. Something wasn't right in the patient's notes. Dr. Phlox on the Enterprise had noticed it too. The patient had been conscious for nearly every procedure he was subjected to. Palikatile would make sure that wouldn't happen again. Thank you, gentlemen, McCormick said. Start planning. Once he's here and we have a donor, I want to move quickly. This man's been through too much for too long. It's time he was healed. Madeline felt ridiculous in the wheelchair being pushed by Darlene. She could walk perfectly well. Well, as long as her device remained green. But the hospital had insisted on it, so she endured it. San Francisco had some beautiful buildings. Starfleet Medical wasn't one of them. She found it too antiseptic and lacking in character. It was entirely modern, though, and she supposed that would serve her brother well. 
The receptionist pointed them to the right corridor and then to a waiting area. Madeline was nervous but also excited. Malcolm would be there in a week, and within a day of that she would probably be dead. It wasn't that it didn't scare her, but it was going to happen whether or not she was scared. Malcolm had a chance where she did not. If she could be his chance, she would save his life, even if it meant her death came a bit sooner. Madeline's phone rang. She pulled it from her bag. It was Mother. Just then, an older woman in a white coat walked up to them. Hello, I'm Dr. McCormick. She held out a hand toward Madeline. Miss Reed, welcome. Madeline declined the call and took the hand that was offered. Thank you for seeing me, Doctor. McCormick shook her hand briefly, then ushered them both into her office. Darlene placed Madeline in front of the desk, then sat beside her. McCormick sat in her chair behind the desk. How much do you know of your brother's condition? I know he was vivisected, Madeline told her, and that he needs a new heart. I spoke with Commander Tucker from his ship. McCormick started to speak, then stopped before finally starting again. Miss Reed, I understand your prognosis is grim, but donating a heart is very final. So is my cancer, Madeline held. She willed herself to answer the doctor's questions calmly and with conviction, and the device on her wrist to stay green throughout the interview. I can help my brother. I admire your desire to donate, but you needn't rush, McCormick argued politely. There is always a need. I will be happy to help others, Madeline said, but I want to help my brother first. He can't wait. Miss Reed has not come to this decision lightly, Darlene added in her defense. Dr. Quill gave her a recommendation after finding her to be competent to make the decision. I see that, McCormick replied, picking up a pad. You're of sound mind at the moment? Madeline held up her wrist. The green was starting to soften. She lowered her wrist again. For now, it will only get worse. I'd rather my passing happen sooner and my brother's life was saved than to know he has to wait on life support and I just wither away. She started to get worried. The display was definitely shifting toward yellow. McCormick sighed. I don't like hastening death needlessly, Miss Reed. But your brother is not needless. However, a sibling relationship does not guarantee genetic co compatibility. You'll need to be tested. Then test me, she wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come. She nodded. Now was all she could manage. Yes, we can do it now, McCormick answered. I'll send for someone to take you to the phlebotomist. Then you can return home and get your affairs in order. She stood and walked around her desk. She held out her hand again, and Madeline managed to take it without a hitch. It's quite a sacrifice, cancer or no. I'm glad to have met you. She released her hand and left the office. Madeline moved her left arm so Darlene could see. She was glad now for the wheelchair. Tell, she said. Do now. Evercolor. Darlene took her hands. All right. A young man arrived. Follow me, please. Darlene got up and wheeled Madeline after him. They went down a corridor and turned left and down another corridor. Madeline couldn't keep track. The device was yellow. She just trusted Darlene would get her there. Finally, they stopped in a small room with tubes and little balls of white. There was a chair with strange arms, almost like a desk. The young man left and a woman in the office spoke. Madeline didn't understand what she said. Darlene replied for her. She held out her arm beside Madeline, so Madeline held out her arm the same way. Darlene rolled her up her sleeve. The woman wrapped something around it tight, then pushed a sharp thing into it. Dark red filled a tube in her hand. She put a white ball in, on the place where the sharp thing was and pulled the sharp thing out. Then she removed the thing that was squeezing her arm. She then pulled off the white ball and held a small box where it had been. It buzzed and felt warm. 
It was gone, and the woman smiled. Darlene talked to her, then they left and were moving again. Madeline just watched the walls and doors roll by. On her wrist, the device had turned yellow-orange. The movement stopped. Darlene moved in front of her. She said something, then looked sad. Madeline started to cry. No? she asked. Darlene touched her face. She shook her head and moved Madeline's wrist so she could see. Orange. Then Darlene just held her hands. Madeline had no concept of time and lost her ability to find meaning in the color of the device until it started changing back from red-orange to orange to yellow-orange. It seemed to her a long time before it all went all the way to green. "'How long until we know?' she asked. "'They'll probably know by the time you get home,' Darlene replied. "'If they say yes, I'm going to stay with you all the way.' Madeline squeezed her hand. "'You've been so good to me.' Darlene smiled. "'You make it easy.' We could have been friends. I think maybe we are friends, Madeline told her, smiling. Take me home, please. I have affairs to get in order. Tripp talked to Madeline again. He didn't have anything new to tell her about Malcolm, so she he just talked and got, tried to get to know her. She was an architect. She was open and friendly, so unlike her brother, at least before he and Malcolm became friends. Where Malcolm was dark-haired, she was bright blonde, and she kept it long but tied up. He was a meticulous dresser, where she wore loose casual clothes. He almost never slouched, but she seemed more relaxed. She smiled and laughed. It seemed their accents were the only thing they had in common. He tried to subtly probe her about Malcolm's childhood, but she only ever talked about when Malcolm was young, not about when he would have been a teenager, nor the mysterious event that happened when he was twelve. He learned that Malcolm used to swim competitively and even win tournaments, that he had ex excelled at school, especially maths and physics, and that he'd been unhappy with their family's move to Malaysia. He missed England with its wet climate and long history. The plants in Malaysia set off his allergies. She avoided talk of their, her parents deftly, so he learned nothing on that front. She ended the call abruptly again, and Tripp wondered if it had to do with her illness. She didn't appear sick, so he had no idea what was ailing her. The lawyer smiled. Well, that was short and sweet. I'll have the documents drawn up for you by tomorrow morning. He handed Madeline a data chip. As for Colin, he'll make sure you have a secure lock on all entrances. He stood and Madeline stood with him. Thank you. I'll contact him today. Would you like me to act as executor or do you have someone else in mind? I do, Madeline said. Thank you. My former employer, Sarah Farmer. She handed him a data chip containing Sarah's business credentials. I'll contact her and guide her through the responsibilities. He walked to the door and Madeline went with him. He offered a hand and she shook it. Good day, Miss Reed. Good day. The door closed after him. What will your brother do with all your female belongings? Mar Darlene asked from her seat on one of the stools at the kitchen counter. Whatever he wishes, Madeline replied. She grabbed the other stool for a seat. He can donate them, give them to mother or to a lady friend. My parents would leave him nothing, so I'm leaving him everything. Simple as that. Also leaves you, let you less to pack up. Madeline chuckled. Less for my mother to get suspicious over. She popped a grape into her mouth. You're really not going to tell them at all? They'll be notified, I'm sure, once it's done. They'll want a funeral and they can have one. They'll wonder why you're in San Francisco and not London. Can't really avoid that one, Madeline replied. She took a few more grapes. I'll need to be close. Besides, I want to see him first, just once. I'm certain they'll let you. Darlene said. I'll make sure of it if I have to make a fuss. She took one of Madeline's hands. 
Are you frightened at all? Madeline nodded. Just that point when I go from being here to gone, you know? But I'm just going to keep thinking about Malcolm, saving him. That's how I'll manage. Darlene squeezed her hand and let go. I'll make dinner. Perhaps you should go record another journal entry. It's going to be rough for him once he finds out. Good plan. I need to let him know I wanted this. She slipped off her stool and went to her room. Two days from now, they'd all be in San Francisco, and she would save his life. Two hours out, and Tripp was with Verrett as he talked with Starfleet Medical's CMO, Dr. Carla McCormick. She needed Verrett to coordinate the transfer of the patient from the ship to the hospital. She needed Tripp because he was a witness to at least Malcolm's last ordeal on Sharu, and because he knew Malcolm personally. She filled him in on their plans once he was safely transferred. To save Malcolm from fear of another surgery, they planned to combine the heart transplant with the nerve transplants and get him done all at once. They had a donor who could supply everything. That both elated and saddened Trip. It was great for Malcolm, but it meant someone had just died. One surgery. Malcolm would wake up whole when he woke up, and Trip would still be on Earth to welcome him back to the land of the conscious. Given the circumstances, it was the best they could hope for. Tripp answered her questions as honestly as he could. Yes, it had been an entire year, and yes, time travel had been involved, which meant there had been no way to remove Malcolm from the situation any sooner than they had. His family included Stuart and Mary Reed and his sister Madeline, and yes, he himself wanted to be kept up to date on Malcolm's recovery. He planned to spend a lot of time at Starfleet Medical when he was not conferring with research and development. Once that was all over, Tripp retired to his quarters to pack and call his mother. Mom wasn't in, though. "'How's Malcolm doing, son?' his dad asked. "'Same,' Tripp replied. "'But they're getting ready for him at Starfleet Medical. "'They've already got a donor and everything.' "'Well, that's good. "'Your mother said you were worried about his parents.' "'Yeah,' Tripp admitted. "'But I've talked to his sister a couple of times. "'If it weren't for their last name, Pop, "'I wouldn't have pegged them as related. "'They could hardly be more different. "'He's quiet, moody, she's light and open, "'has no problem telling me about herself.' Same parents, so how'd they come out opposites? Same parents doesn't mean same treatment, his father said, or same experiences. You said something happened when he was 12 that changed things with his dad. That thing must not have involved his sister. So nothing changed between her and her parents, but they had for Malcolm. Tripp sighed. Yeah, has to be it. She grows up in favor and Malcolm doesn't. She cares a lot about him, though, I could tell. Good, Dad replied, nodding. Sounds like he had her in his corner, at least. You do know we kept your room here, right? If you think it's not good with his parents, you bring him here. Why hadn't he thought of that? You sure? He's not the easiest person to get to know on a good day, and those aren't going to be good days. We've had our share of bad days, Trip. Trip nodded. They, too, had suffered when Elizabeth had been killed. They lost their daughter and their home. I know, he said. Thanks, Pop. I'll keep that in my pocket. I'll let you know if it comes to that. When are you due in? Should be in San Francisco around 8, Tripp told him. I'll have to meet with R&D tomorrow morning. Well, don't forget to swing by here once in a while. We miss you, son. I miss you, too. Tripp quickly worked out the logistics to see if he could swing by home after Malcolm got settled tonight, or maybe when he was in surgery. That probably wasn't going to happen the same night he arrived. Maybe I can stop in later tonight. Surgery is sure to take a few hours, too. Either way... Dad assured him, beats moping in a waiting room.
Sarah Farmer placed the locking mechanism on the outside of Madeline's door, then synchronized it with the lock on her briefcase. She turned to her former employee. I'm going to miss you. Madeline touched her arm. You could have fired me for all those mistakes, but you told me to see a doctor. You were right, but you didn't have to do that. I couldn't have asked for a better boss. I knew that something had to be wrong, Sarah told her. You're too good an architect to just be sloppy. Are you sure about this? Madeline smiled. I'm very sure. He's my brother. All right, then. Sarah nodded. I'll find him after the funeral. I will tell your parents nothing until after I deliver this case. Darlene arrived behind them. Transport is all set. Madeline nodded. She turned back to Sarah. Thank you for what you did and for what you will do. It's my pleasure. She wiped a tear from her eye, then pulled Madeline into a hug. Go, save your brother's life. Then she handed her off to Darlene. Madeline brushed her own tears away in the lift. It's time. Darlene walked her out to the transport, and they both got in. Starfleet Medical, San Francisco? The pilot asked for confirmation. Yes, Madeline replied. ETA is 3 hours 45 minutes, around 8.15 p.m. local time. Seats recline if you feel like napping. Snacks and water are available in the cubby to, on your right. Pillows and blankets on the left. Thank you, Darlene offered. Madeline checked the snacks and found a package of small chocolate donuts. She laughed. Don't have to worry about eating healthy now. Darlene smiled. Indulge, then maybe we'll have a sleep before we arrive. She handed Madeline a blanket and pillow, and they both got comfortable for the trip. Madeline offered Darlene a donut, but she grabbed an apple from the cubby instead. I do need to eat healthy. Thank you again for sticking with me, Madeline told her. It's my pleasure, Darlene offered. I said I'd stay all the way. I think this is a brave and noble thing you're doing, but nothing says you have to be brave alone. The transfer was a blur of activity. The Vulcans hooked Malcolm up to a portable unit, and Tripp climbed into the shuttle next to Verrett, who monitored Malcolm all the way to the surface. Dr. McCormick met them on the landing pad. Verrett escorted Malcolm inside, with the CMO leading the way. Nurses and technicians assisted in transferring Malcolm from the Vulcan's gurney and equipment to their own with swift efficiency. Tripp stayed near the door, out of the way. Verrett checked Malcolm over once more, then made some remarks on a pad which he held out to McC for McCormick to sign. Transfer complete, he announced. He met Tripp at the door. He held up his right hand with his thumb out and his fingers split two and two. Live long and prosper, Commander Tucker. Tripp mirrored the gesture with his own hand. Live long and prosper, and thank you for taking good care of my friend. Verrett nodded, then left, presumably to head back to the shuttle. The nurses and techs left, and then it was just Tripp, Malcolm, and Dr. McCormick. She wasn't a tall woman, but she radiated confidence. He could see she was a leader by the way she moved. Her shoulder-length black hair was tucked behind her ears, and the few wrinkles in her face put her in her early sixties. Your Dr. Flox had some concern about the lieutenant's eye. That was part of the earlier procedures, was it not? Tripp stepped further into the room. I think so, yes. Did he happen to mention having any trouble with his vision? Tripp thought back to those moments when Malcolm was conscious back on the ship. Don't think it ever came up. He wasn't too talkative. It wasn't easy on him. McCormick bent over Malcolm's head and opened his left eye. She held a small scanner over it, then moved to the other eye. I'll get an ophthalmologist to look these over. I'd rather we know now if that will require surgery. Finally, she turned and looked at Tripp. You found him, didn't you? Me and Lieutenant Woods. Tripp moved over and lifted one of Malcolm's splinted hands. 
couldn't have been easy. She put a hand on Tripp's shoulder. And I know it's not easy seeing him like this either. Surgery is set for tomorrow morning. We're going to take good care of him. I've my best heart surgeon on it, my best neurosurgeons, and anesthesiologist. He's going to look a lot better when he wakes up. Tripp just nodded. He was in a research facility. Sterile environment? A laboratory, Tripp told her. No furniture, but beds and medical equipment. So waking up in a room like this would not be conducive to his good mental health. No, I guess it wouldn't. The sunburn was fading on Malcolm's face, but patches of his skin were starting to peel. Some medical equipment will be necessary, but I think we can make his recovery room a bit homier. Paint the walls, bring in a sofa, some plants, a soft lamp. Tripp turned to look at her. Her face was serious. We have good counselors, too. Even a new guy, a Betazoid from Betazet, came in on the interspecies medical program. You might like to talk to one of them, too. Tripp sighed. I think I'm going to go home for the night and talk to my mom instead. McCormick smiled and inclined her head. Locke said to keep you posted on his condition while you're on Earth. How long are you planning on staying? Until R&D's done with me, he replied. A couple weeks would be my guess. She tilted her head slightly. What is he to you? My best friend, he said without hesitation. Almost a brother. Then it will be good he has you for those couple weeks. There was a soft knock at the door. Both he and the doctor turned. Madeline! Tripp exclaimed, recognizing Malcolm's sister from their conversations. She was with another woman. He went to the door and offered Madeline a hand. Instead of taking it, she pulled him into a hug. Tripp, it's good to finally meet you, she released him, but I'd like to see my brother. Of course, Tripp said. I'll head down to the canteen. Maybe we can have that tea there when you're done here. I'd like that, she replied with a smile. I'll meet you there shortly. Tripp led her and her companion into the room, then picked up his bag and headed for the canteen. Miss Reed, Dr. McCormick said. She took Madeline's hand and brought her to the bedside. When Madeline started to cry, she put an arm around her shoulders. I know it looks bad now, but imagine him after it's over. No splints on those wrists, no braces on his ankles. He'll be able to walk, to run eventually. The tubes and wires will go away. The sunburn will fade. You're going to help him be healthy again. Madeline lifted Malcolm's hand. It felt warm but lifeless in hers. She touched his sunburned face. It was hot under her hand. His chest rose and fell regularly. When? she asked. Ten in the morning. There it was, the time of her death. It won't hurt. Not at all, McCormick replied. You'll take good care of him. The best we can, I promise you. Madeline sniffed and held out her hand to Darlene. I think I'll go have that tea now. Tripp could tell she'd been crying, but she smiled as she and her companion joined him at the table. This is my friend Darlene, she said, introducing the woman with short brown hair. Darlene, this is my brother's friend, Commander Charles Tucker. Tripp offered Darlene a hand. Call me Tripp, please. Good to meet you, Tripp, she said, shaking his hand briefly. I'll go get us some tea then. Tripp wanted so much to ask about their parents' relationship with Malcolm, but Madeline had said she was sick and he didn't want to push her. Besides, she asked him about Malcolm, and he ended up regaling her with stories while they sipped their tea. He told her about the mishap on Shuttle Pad 1 that began his and Malcolm's friendship, about the time Malcolm got stuck on the hole and impaled by a Romulan mine. He even told some embarrassing stories to make her laugh. If it wasn't for T'Pol, Tripp might have wanted to get to know Madeline better. He also didn't know how Malcolm would feel about him seeing his sister.
Then Darlene tapped what looked like a wristwatch on Madeline's wrist. I think it's time for your medicine, Madeline. Madeline looked at the watch. Ah, yes it is. Thank you for the tea trip. I'm glad my brother has you here. And then they were gone. Dr. McCormick was waiting in the corridor. She could see something wasn't right with Madeline Reed's gate. She quickly went to meet them. Shall I get a chair? She asked the nurse, Darlene. Yes, I think it best, she answered. She was supporting Madeline for the most part. McCormick waved to an orderly who wheeled a chair over. Darlene deposited Madeline in it. McCormick did a quick scan with her medical scanner. Her spells come and go, Darlene explained. Madeline looked with worry at the device on her wrist. Where it had been green in her office a week ago, it was now a dark orange color. Would you rather stay here for tonight? McCormick asked her. We can put another bed in there with your brother. Madeline nodded in big movements. The device was almost red in color now. Madeline looked to Darlene in panic. No, blah, blah. Darlene knelt in front of her. It's okay, it's not black. But the panic was gone and Madeline nearly fell out of the chair. The device on her dangling arm was deep red now. McCormick gave quick orders, and the bed was wheeled into the room with Lieutenant Reed. Darlene wheeled Madeline in, and the two of them got her onto the bed. Black is bad, the nurse commented. She seems to be staying deep red, McCormick told her. What's the color system? Green is full cognition, goes downhill to yellow, then orange, red, and finally black. Too long in black, and she's dead. She was afraid she might die too early. Good thing she's in a hospital, then. McCormick gave some more orders, and soon Madeline was hooked up to monitors with an oxygen tube set up in her nose. The device on her wrist slowly turned a brighter shade of red. Darlene brushed her hair from Madeline's forehead. When the device showed orange, she spoke to her. Still here, she told her charge. Would you like me to turn you so you can see him? Two for yes. Madeline blinked twice, so Darlene helped her onto her side. See, it was a short one. McCormick tucked a blanket around the young woman. Get some rest, dear, she said. We'll all be here in the morning. It took another twenty minutes for the device to go green. Madeline fell asleep waiting. Darlene found the one chair in the room. You don't need to stay, McCormick quietly told the nurse. Darlene sighed. Palliative care and hospice are my specialties. I told her I'd stay with her all the way. McCormick nodded. We'll be sure to get you scrubbed in tomorrow. Can I get you something? Coffee? Something to eat? Blanket and a couple pillows? She asked, apparently with the plan of sleeping in that chair. Of course, McCormick replied. She left the room, dimming the lights on her way out. She told the orderly at the desk to fetch three pillows and a blanket. Chairs were not the most comfortable place to sleep. Fortunately, it only took an hour to reach his parents' place. He still missed their old place where he'd grown up, but that was lost to the Zindi attack along with seven million people. Elizabeth had been one of them. He set the barred flitter down gently in the front yard. Mom was out of the door before Tripp could get the flap open. She wrapped him in a hug as soon as both feet were finally planted in the grass. His father added two more arms, and it became a group hug. Mom kissed his cheek before she let go. Tripp reveled in the affection. He was used to it. This had been standard procedure when he came home for decades now. But it was him wondering if Malcolm got even a fraction of it when he came home that made him appreciate it so much now. Dad wrapped an arm over his shoulder and walked him into the house. You missed dinner, he said. But you're just in time for dessert, Mom said. Ooh, what are we having? Tripp asked, following them to the kitchen. Mom pulled out a chair for him, then went to the counter while Dad went to the freezer. Warm peach pie, Mom answered. 
placing a plate with a sizable piece in front of him. She got two more for her and Dad. A la mode, Dad tacked on, and he scooped a hefty po portion of vanilla ice cream on top of the pie. Mom sat down as Dad topped the other plates. He put the ice cream away before sitting down to enjoy his dessert. Trip couldn't speak if he wanted to. The ice cream was melting, so he tucked in. Soft, gently sweet peaches and creamy ice cream, one warm and one cold. It was heaven. Good, so he won't have to wait long, Dad commented. What can you tell us about what happened to him? Trip flashed back to Malcolm lying there in the sand. Hell, he replied. He's been through hell, and for a whole year at that. He was gone for a year, Mom asked. Well, yes and no. Trip tried to explain without getting too technical. When the shuttle he was in crashed, it crashed in the past. He was only gone a few days from our perspective, but for him and Hoshi it was a year, and not a good one. He was studied by the scientists there, invasively. They experimented on him, too. They tortured and drugged him to make him talk. What they did in the end topped all of that. His heart just couldn't keep up anymore. Mom rubbed his hand. Well, that will change after tomorrow. He'll have a new healthy heart and can start on healing. What about this Hoshi? She's still on Enterprise, Trip groused. He frowned. She shouldn't be. She should be down here with him, with her family. She wasn't as bad off physically, but up here, he pointed to his forehead. She suffered a lot, too. He was tempted to tell them about Malcolm's new ability and how the two of them fell in love, but he'd promised Malcolm he wouldn't tell anyone but the captain. Malcolm didn't deserve any broken promises. You learn anything new about his family? Mom asked. Tripp nodded. He's got a sister who cares about him a lot. She was there at the hospital tonight. Came to see him. That's sweet, she replied. But not his parents? Tripp shrugged. Dad got up to put the dishes in the sink. I'm not even sure they know, to be honest. Medical may have to notify them. Suppose it makes sense if they did. I would certainly want to know if it was you in there, Mom insisted. Maybe they'll visit after the surgery. Maybe, Tripp said. He rubbed his eyes. You must be tired from that boring trip, Trip. Dad commented, clapping him on the shoulders. Your room's all made up, just in case you stopped by. Thanks, Pop. He stood and bent to kiss his mother on the cheek. Pie was divine. "'Great-grandma's recipe never disappoints,' she replied. She caught his arm before he headed to the bedroom. "'Did you ever figure out Malcolm's favorite food?' Tripp smiled, remembering. "'Pineapple. Took some doing to find out. Flox had to let Hoshi in on a bit of Malcolm's medical history to find out. Something about him being allergic to it, but taking stuff so he wouldn't be affected.' "'Suppose the ends did justify the means on that one,' Dad quipped. "'He was very happily surprised,' Tripp told him. Might have even been the first time I ever saw him smile. Tripp had to go back to the flitter for his bag, but he was ready for bed within 30 minutes. He was tired. As he lay in bed, he loved the familiarity of it. New house, new walls, new mattress, but still, it felt like home. And he could vaguely hear his parents still talking at the kitchen table. He couldn't make out what they were saying, but their voices made a comfortable white noise. He was asleep in minutes. They woke her at 8.30. She took care of her needs in the bathroom, then she and Darlene went to the canteen for a breakfast of gelatin in three flavors. Madeline would have rather gorged on her breakfast favorites like French toast with peanut butter and syrup washed down with a large glass of cold chocolate milk. Seemed more fitting for her last breakfast, but surgery was this morning. She couldn't eat solids before surgery. Still, they were good flavors, strawberry, pina colada, and lime. Poor Malcolm wasn't even getting that. 
Is there anything you'd like to do? Darlene asked. We've got just over 30 minutes before we have to have you back. I'd say go for a walk in town, but we wouldn't get far in that time, Madeline replied. Maybe a drive then. I'd like to see the old parts of the city. Look at the buildings. Darlene smiled. I think we could see a few. They left the canteen in the hospital and got a cab. Where are two ladies? The pilot asked. I'm an architect, Madeline replied. Show me some of San Francisco's iconic buildings. And have us back here by 925, Darlene added. That I can do. The pilot lifted off, but not too high, and in minutes they were up into a steep residential area. The painted ladies, from the mid-20th century, but hearkening back to Victorian and Edwardian times. He flew them by the old city hall, Grace Cathedral, and the Palace Hotel, taking time to highlight the architecture of each. Too soon they were once again parked at the ultra-modern Starfleet Medical Hospital. Darlene walked her back inside. Dr. McCormick was waiting. I hope you had a lovely morning. I do wish we could have given you a better breakfast. At least there were three flavors, Madeline replied. What's next? We prep you and your brother for surgery, McCormick said. She led them to another room. Once we're all ready, we'll wheel you into the OR. We'll hook you up to a device that will connect to that implant in your head. It will trigger one of your spells without the accompanying headache. You'll be in control of that trigger. Madeline nodded and took a steadying breath. Would you like to speak to a counselor beforehand, McCormick offered. I've got Darlene, Madeline replied. All the way, Darlene said, repeating her promise. There's a gown on the chair. Lie on the bed, McCormick pointed to the chair. Darlene, if you would open the door when she's ready. Darlene nodded. McCormick left and closed the door. Suddenly, M Madeline's knees felt weak. She sat down on the bed. This is it. Darlene sat beside her and pulled her into a side hug. It will be quick and painless. Like going into black? Madeline asked. I won't really know. You'll lose consciousness before you pass. That moment of transition, you won't even be aware of it. Madeline blew out a shaky breath. Should make it easier. Do you think there's anything after? I'd like to be able to look after Malcolm, you know? I don't know, Madeline replied. My great-grandparents used to believe there was. My parents, not so much. They used to think that heaven was a place in the sky or above it. We've been beyond it, far beyond it, light years, and no one ever found heaven. Maybe it's more of a dimensional thing, Madeline posited. This life is one dimension, and the next is another. Darlene squeezed her shoulder. You'll be the one to find out. Maybe you can find a way to let me know. Madeline sighed. Malcolm needs me. She hopped off the bed and began to remove her clothes. At 9.55, Madeline Reed was brought into the OR. Darlene came with her, scrubbed and robed. She held Madeline's hand the entire time. Dr. Carla McCormick approached on the opposite side of Madeline's gurney. She placed a small controller in Madeline's hand. They're going to let us know when Malcolm is ready. Then, when you're ready, you just slide this forward with your thumb. It will be like slipping into yellow, then orange, then red, then black. When your brain registers no activity for five minutes, we'll call it. Then you'll save your brother's life and probably a few others. Madeline locked eyes with her. Malcolm first. Anything I have that he needs. Then the others. My brain goes to research. Maybe they'll find a way to treat these damn tumors. She took a breath. Don't tell my parents what I've done. Darlene will inform them. As you wish, McCormick said. It will be done. The partition was pulled back. We're ready. Madeline turned to Darlene, met her eyes. All the way, she whispered. Darlene blinked back her tears. All the way. She squeezed Madeline's hand and nodded. Madeline didn't look back. She moved the lever forward, and slowly, gently, the muscles in her face relaxed, the focus in her eyes released. 
Darling kept one hand on Madeline's, then closed Madeline's eyes with the other. McCormick watched the monitor, then started the countdown. Madeline was intubated, and the ventilator kept her breathing. Her pulse was steady, but there was no neural activity. Five minutes later, McCormick called it. Time of death, 10-11. Darlene sniffed and left the room. McCormick followed her out. You picked a difficult specialty. Darlene nodded. My father died alone. I couldn't get home in time. My mum was away on business. He had an aneurysm. I don't want that to happen with anyone else. It hurts, but I want each one to know they had someone with them. I said difficult, McCormick replied. Not unworthy. I'll take her body back to England, minus one hand, to be cremated. The ashes will need to be delivered to her executor to be added to her will. We can handle a cremation that small, McCormick said. Can you get the ashes to the executor? Darlene nodded. I think I'd like to speak with one of those counselors. McCormick nodded. She held out an arm to indicate the waiting area. I'll send one to you. Darling went to wait. McCormick went back to her desk to request the counselor on duty. Then she returned to the theater to watch over her patient. Well, that got me in tears. <laughs> that was the, um, the death of Madeline Reed. If you read this on, Ma on AO3, the tags are very important on AO3, and I did put in the tags. Canonical character death, and that was for Madeline Reed. In the show, she never died that we know of, but I just had her die to save her brother's life. So this is why we've had her journals, and we've followed her even after the present. We go back to two weeks, or what is it, or two months, or whatever, because she was going to do this. And when I got the idea for the sequel, I knew that this was going to happen, that Madeline was going to provide the heart. And so I just had to figure out how to start that. Um, I think I ended up on a pretty good beginning. <laughs> and this is it. I like the relationship with Tripp and his parents. They are presented in the books rather than the TV show. Um, Tripp does talk about them a bit in the TV show, especially when they were trying to figure out Malcolm's favorite food. He's like, yeah, my mom would tell you. She'd give you the recipe. <laughs> um, so he definitely has a closer relationship with his family. It was in the books that tried to kind of fix the series finale by saying that Trip faked his death to join Section 31, but he can't even let his parents know. So there's a time when the others meet his parents, um, Elaine and, and Charles Tucker the second. So, and um, in the wiki, I think it is, it says that um, Charles calls Elaine Gracie. So that may come up uh, as well. He has a brother named Albert who's married to Miguel, and they adopted a son, Owen. And after um, Elizabeth's death with this India attack, Albert kind of hates Starfleet. Um, 
and there's according to the wiki owen later will be wanting to join the makos he's a teenager right now which it kind of you know is a hard point between him and his dad well at least albert we don't how, know how miguel felt about that i have given miguel a profession and that will come up in later chapters I don't believe even the wiki lists anything for Albert and Miguel as to their professions. So I brought Miguel into the story with this profession. I won't spoil what that is, but I did, I hope I did Madeline justice. She said in her journal entry, she's never even saved a life. And one of the commenters on the story said, well, now she's saved one, at least one, her brother's. So I hope I handled it uh, respectfully. And I hope that maybe it made you tear up a little bit to listen to it. I need to blow my nose and you don't want to hear that. So I'm going to pause and come back. And I'm back. <laughs> uh, the other thing I did today was I finished reading what I have of Momentous, the 60 chapters. After I recorded yesterday, I actually went back and read more of momentous and so I, today I just had 10 uh, chapters to read and God I was all teary-eyed and had to go through lots of Kleenexes <laughs> chapter 59 I believe is the one where Noctis dies yep spoiler for Final Fantasy 15 Noctis has to die at the end <laughs> to save the world and 59 is when it happens, and it's really hard on his friends. Chapter 60 is just after that. And um, I went ahead and tonight I wrote chapter 61, which is following fairly much right on that. And then I started chapter 62, which happens about a month later. So... It will be close in time with these moments for a little bit. And then we're going to jump like probably five years or something and then a decade. <laughs> so I, I won't spend all that time really close. So I don't know how many chapters it has. But I almost feel like I want to keep writing it till I get at least out of the mood. I'm kind of like on a roll and I want to stay in that role and not switch to another story. So, uh, the path not taken may have to wait a bit longer. They are short chapters, so, you know, that's easy. Um, we'll see. But, um, I think most of the tears in the story were going to be there in chapters 59, 60, 61, Maybe 62 is where we start to smile. And it's going to be a little bit more fluffy after that, um, which I find harder to write. So that should be interesting. But um, I will give it my best. I hope you're enjoying Finding Home and um, that you find it a worthy sequel to Alien Us and... I think tomorrow we come back on the other side of that surgery. So we'll find out. Malcolm should be back in Chapter 4. 
and not unconscious. So, <laughs> at least some of the time. All right, and you might have noticed there was no Hoshi in this episode, or yeah, in this episode, in this chapter, there's no Hoshi for a while. That's the bookends, like there were, they, the Enterprise was in Alien Us. Only, we're going to bring Hoshi back before the end, um, a couple chapters before the end, unlike with Alien Us. Well, I think there was a couple chapters after they were found, but anyway. Um, she comes back earlier than I thought she'd come back. Um, but she comes back into the story. Um, I can't remember exactly which chapter, but it'll be a while yet. Maybe 10 chapters, I think around 13, but it could be 14, it could be 15. <laughs> um, well, it's not 15, 16, or 17, because those, those are the ones I wrote more recently. So it's probably 13 or 14. But anyway, I do hope you enjoyed this, and... Um, that I did even the original characters well. I've said this many times. What I want for original characters is for them to be just the other people in the story. I don't want them to scream out, I'm an invincible, an original character. <laughs> I don't want them to stand out. I want them to feel full and three-dimensional as well as the other characters. The ones that aren't in the story as much don't get as much development, but the ones who are going to be coming back, they get more development. I hope that Dr. McCormick feels real to you. I had fun with the three doctors. So one is probably American, Carver, but Novak is Czech. And unfortunately, even if I was um, less self-conscious and was doing accents, which I really wish I was, but I couldn't manage to do it, I can't tell you what a Czech accent sounds like. I can't fake a Czech accent. I lived there for a year and I can't fake a Czech accent. So I gave him one of my, um, one of the sayings that I heard a lot out there by, che over there by Czechs. Jezus Maria. <laughs> Jesus Mary. <laughs> Interesting on Stargate Atlantis. They had a Czech character played by a Czech actor, and he would often say, Jezus Maria. <laughs> and he also said, Škoda. Škoda means it's a pity. It's also the name of a car brand <laughs> that was, I think, created during the communist years so that you know, the Czechs have a sense of humor. <laughs> Škoda. And then the other guy was uh, Latourneau. He was a French guy. And I know I can do a French accent, but I still couldn't do it in this podcast. I'm here recording in a room by myself. When I'm not recording by myself or talking to anyone else, I can do an English accent. I can do a French accent. I can do a Russian accent. I can do a German accent. But as soon as I know somebody may be listening, my self-consciousness kicks in and I can't do it. So to all those uh, podcasters and story readers out there who can do different voices, I salute you. In my writer's group, and there's three of us that come back week after week, well, every other, every other week, but there's three of us that are very regular, and one that's maybe starting to be, and one is Dylan, and when Dylan reads from his story, he does the voices, and it's great. <laughs> I just love that it's great. Um, I just can't manage to do it. 
I try to give a little difference to people's voices to kind of tell them apart during a dialogue and maybe speak a little lower for Tripp's dad and a little higher for Tripp's mom. Um, he kind of had a little bit of a southern accent in the show. So he said he was going for like Ozarks, but they put him in Florida instead. But that, that Connor Trenier, the actor, he said he was trying to get more more like Ozarks and Missouri Arkansas, but they made the character from Florida instead. Um, interestingly, I'm, I got him to, well, it wasn't my plan, but I got him to have everybody sing happy birthday to me at a convention once. He was up on stage and I raised my hand and finally got picked. And I asked him a question. And I said, by the way, it's my birthday. And I can't even remember the question I asked, but he's like, okay, we're going to sing happy birthday to you. And the whole, the whole place sang happy birthday to me. Thanks to Connor Turnier. <laughs> that was fun because I went to convention on my birthday while wearing a Star Trek uniform. Yes, I have a Star Trek uniform. I made the jacket. Um, I bought the communicator pin, and originally it did go chirp, chirp, chirp like it's supposed to. Um, the battery's a little low, so it doesn't. It sounds rather sickly right now. Um, I did. Uh, I wore stirrup pants over my boots, so I have ankle boots, and uh, a turtleneck under it. I was hoping for a mock neck, but the color I got that was best for the costume I couldn't find in a mock neck I could only get in a turtle so I just folded over make it two and I had the pips on the on the side too to make me I believe a lieutenant commander but I can't remember I had a phaser remote control so you could back in the days when you had the universal remote controls for your VCR and your TV and the like uh, I don't know that it would control anything now <laughs> but it also made sounds uh, sound effects of a phaser. I had a medical tricorder that had the pop-out scanner. Like, this is DS9, not Enterprise level, but, um, or TNG level. You know, the TNG, DS9, and Voyager all kind of were in the same timeline. Um, Enterprise is well before that, before even TOS. So it's a prequel. So yes, I am a nerd. I write fan fiction. Of course I'm a nerd. And I don't mind being a nerd. <laughs> We have been watching Picard lately, and sadly, in season seven, I'm not trying to spoil here, we're not done watching it. It doesn't appear that Elnor is anywhere in it. He was my favorite. I loved his entrance as an adult in the first season. <laughs> and he says, choose life, friend. And then he just takes that guy's head off in these fabulous moves. I'm just like, <laughs> I loved Elnor. <laughs> He's like the Romulan Legolas, somebody said. And I'm like, yes, I love Legolas. So I, of course, I love Eldor. But he also had this young innocentness to him. So when he's in a tight spot and he's having, you know, he's about to get killed, even though he's this fabulous fighter, but he's still getting outnumbered and they're, they're shooting at him. Um, Seven shows up because he was able to make a call to the Fenris Rangers, I believe it was. But Seven shows up and takes care of him, and he runs up and he hugs her. <laughs> it's, it's like, shows his youth right there. He was um, orphaned as a young boy, and Picard would visit him for a while, but he was left in the care of the... I can't even say it. It's the Romulan order that believes in candor above all things, but they're also 
fabulous fighters. They're all women, and they take on uh, impossible quests. So Elnor takes on Picard's impossible quests. He's the one male of this group because they trained him. That He lived with them from being a child, and so he trained with them. And so he became one of them, even though he's a guy and he <laughs> takes everything literally He's <laughs> because of candor. He can't lie. He can't fake anything. And, and he has this innocence about him because he, he's so young. So in the second one, the second season, he, well, Q sends them back in the past. And in the past, he's killed. And Rafi has such a hard time with that. In the beginning, in the present timeline, he joined Starfleet. So he's the first Romulan to be in Starfleet, I think. And um, <laughs> I imagine... <laughs> it's not a fanfic I'll write, but I'd love to see it if somebody did. When he's doing, like, PT training, physical physical training, like PE class, or, you know, like, self-defense and, and fighting... Because, you know, a Starfleet officer, you got to know how to do this stuff. That he just wipes the floor with the instructor. <laughs> and, the, and the instructor's like, what happened? <laughs> I think you passed. <laughs> I could just see it. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. I would love to see that. But I missed him not being in the third season. He was, oh, he was my favorite. Definitely my favorite. So, but this the the season has been good so far. We've seen six or seven episodes, so we have three more to watch, and it's not looking good for our 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 crew here. So uh, right now the villains have the upper hand, and so I'm kind of anxious to see how it ends. But uh, no Elnor, sadly. So, where was I? Oh, yeah, I'm a nerd, obviously. I don't mind being a nerd. My other thing growing up was I would be a nerd that doesn't look like a nerd. <laughs> so, but I am. I got high grades at school. I graduated in the top six of my class with a 3.94 grade point average. Same grade point average in college. Uh, 3.87 in, in grad school, but that's because they weighted their um, grades differently. So high school and college, the anything, you know, an A was four. There was no point something. <laughs> and so if I got, I knew when I got a B in math after, well, it was pre-calc. Like, why didn't I, you know, I could have just, I tested into pre-calc. I could have just taken college math, probably got an A. Pre-calc was hard. And um, my book got, my book, my whole book bag got stolen halfway through the semester with my chemist, uh, my ge geolo you know, geology rocks, uh, honors geology book and my pre-calc book were stolen. So I had to like borrow books to, to study. And I even got an F on one of the tests. So yeah, I got out of there with a B and that was a F five hour class so it kind of no way I'm getting a 4.0 now the best I could possibly do was a 3.94 which I did 
and that was in my freshman year of college. <laughs> so I did very well on my final um, paper and exam in grad school that didn't have to do a thesis. I got a high pass, four high passes and, and a pass. So I did very well. So very intelligent, good student, Trekkie, <laughs> Star Wars geek, fanfic writer, <laughs> part-time costumer. I have an elf dress too and I love to wear the ears. So yeah, I'm definitely a nerd. But my husband's a little bit of a nerd too. He's into Star Wars more than Star Trek, but he's also into Star Trek. So he hasn't seen all the episodes of say Voyager, Deep Space Nine, but he's watched all of Discovery with me. He's watched all of Picard. He's a little behind on we both are a little behind on Prodigy, and um, we're caught up, I believe, on Lower Decks. And Strange New Worlds will be happening soon. There's a lot of Trek out there to be watched. Um, we've seen the the movies uh, since the reboot, um, the Kelvin timeline, rather. I was not happy about the Kelvin timeline. Uh, I got free tickets, or I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> but... I went in there skeptical. I'm like, why are they rewriting this? And especially since it didn't match up. Because if the Romulan ship did what it did, it would have changed all of the history that comes after. So it wipes out Deep Space Nine. And that bothered me. I'd heard that, and it bothered me. So if I wouldn't got free, wouldn't have gotten free tickets, I wouldn't have gone. So we went with the free tickets, and when Chekhov worked it out that we we're kind of in an alternate timeline, I was like, okay, they made it okay. Because they didn't wipe out everything that came before. This is a branch, an alternate timeline, and I can enjoy it for what it is. They didn't wipe out what I love. So um, that's how I see the Kelvin timeline, uh, which has been fun. But sadly, the actor who played Chekhov has died in real life. And I don't know if they'll replace him. Um, I kind of think they should because Chekhov should keep going. I thought Black Panther should keep going because uh, Chadwick Boseman's brother thought that Chadwick wouldn't have wanted T'Challa to die because he died. He played the part when he was sick. Um, he hit it very well. But he did succumb to his illness and he was gone. But Marvel Cinematic Universe did decide to go ahead and kill T'Challa. So he dies off screen. And in Black Panther um, Wakanda Forever starts out dealing with the funeral and the grief and then they have to you know fight this this new enemy while dealing with that grief um, it's I think they handled it well but I don't think they handled it the way Chadwick would have wanted his brother would know so well, we've covered my nerddom, I think, quite well, so I will sign off. I hope that you're enjoying the story, and we'll come back for the next 14 chapters and epilogue. 
If you would like to leave me a note, say hello, tell me that you're listening. My email address is inhildy at gmail.com. My mastodon, not Twitter, handle is at inhildy. And that inhildy is spelled I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. All right. See you soon.